Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. Brad Feld is a partner and co-founder of Foundry. He has been an early-stage investor and entrepreneur for over 35 years since founding his first company, Feld Technologies, in college. Brad is also the co-founder of Techstars, and with his wife, Amy Batchelor, runs the Anchor Point Foundation. Brad has written several books on entrepreneurship and venture capital and started blogging in 2004 before VC uh, Twitter existed. He is also an art collector and a long-distance runner and spends time in the mountains. Um, so, uh, Brad, uh, welcome to the Deal Quest podcast. Corey, thanks for having me. And we also have, we have a bonus today. We have two guests, which is not, you know, we've occasionally done that, but it's not been uh, the usual. So I'm so excited about that. And our other guest is Matt Blumberg. Uh, and he is a technology entrepreneur, business builder, and CEO of Bolster, an on-demand executive talent marketplace that helps accelerate companies' growth by connecting them with experienced, highly vetted executives for interim fractional advisory and project-based or board roles. Matt has been recognized as one of the New York's 100 most influential technology leaders by Business Insider, uh, by Cranes as one of New York's top entrepreneurs, and by Ernst & Young as Entrepreneur of the Year finalist. Uh, before Bolster, Matt built businesses uh, and worked in marketing, consulting, and venture capital. He's the author of Startup CEO, Startup CXO, and co-author with Brad of Startup Boards, uh, which was released in June of 22. Um, Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks, Corey. Happy to be here. So guys, before we get into all the great stuff you've done around, you know, investing and working with startups and this, uh, you know, and, and boards, and we're going to talk about an interesting, you know, deal angle around developing boards. I want to take you each back to when you were a little kid growing up, maybe 8, 10, 12 years old. Um, what did you want to be? Because my guess is, you know, VC investor and board development probably wasn't on the menu back then, but you tell me. I, I mean, I wanted to be shortstop for the San Diego Padres, which is where I grew up. And unfortunately, I'm a lefty and I'm also not very good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will tell you, I, I coached a police athletic league team, you know, like young kids in, in New York. And I had a lefty shortstop at that level. You can get away with it. <laughs> I have. Uh, I, so I coach my son's baseball team uh, and have for almost 10 years now. And uh, you can get away with a lot, a lot of things with Little League. But uh, that was what I wanted to be. Although it's very funny. We, we, um, we have this picture of me. So my dad was in VC and then became a tech entrepreneur. Okay. We have uh, this picture of me when I'm like maybe four years old wearing my dad's suit jacket, which, you know, like comes down to the ground. And I have on like a tie sort of, and I'm carrying his briefcase, which is like a hard shell. Yeah, yeah. Old school, school briefcase. Yeah. And it's like in my backyard with my dog. And um, it's a really it's a really entertaining picture. And uh, my dad and I team teach a business school class every year 
uh, in San Diego that a friend of his is the professor on in entrepreneurship. And he always starts the class by putting up this picture of me. So <laughs> there's some, I guess, to some extent, I, I wanted to do this for a while. I love it. And Brad, how about you? Uh, my answer has to do with my dad also, but it's uh, it's not what I wanted to be because I didn't have any idea what I wanted to be, but I did know very much what I didn't want to be. Okay. Um, my dad would tell me the story about uh, his father when he was growing up, when he was a little kid, and his father would say to him, son, uh, you can be anything you want to be as long as you're a doctor. <laughs> and so my dad, my dad was a doctor yeah. and I was about... Uh, you know, about the same age, 10, let's say that you're talking about here. And I really hated everything about what my dad did. I, he was a great doctor. He was beloved by his patients. But I, when he'd take me on rounds at the hospital, all I wanted to do was like hide under a desk and read a book. Like the smell, <laughs> the noise, the beeping, the lights, the sick people, not my thing. And so I remember walking into his, his uh, study um, or his office at our house uh, I grew up in Dallas, Texas, and I was very nervous, very, very nervous, uh, because I was ready to make this pronouncement as a 10-year-old to, you know, my father, who was this enormous personality. Sure. I really didn't want to be a doctor. And, you know, I sort of trembled out something like, hey, dad, you know, I don't want to be a doctor. Probably said it really fast and really quietly. And he repeated the story that I'd heard about his father saying to him, you can be anything you want as long as you're a doctor. He says, Brad, you can be anything you want. And he oh. finished with that. And that was powerful for me at 10 to sort of unconstrained. I can go anywhere I want with this. What a great story. I, listen, I identify with you in that my mother was a critical care nurse. She was head nurse in like uh, intensive care and cardiac care. And I hate it. Like if I had to go, like when I was a teenager to get the car keys or pickups or whatever, like it was the last environment I ever wanted to be in was anywhere near, you know, a hospital or any of that kind of stuff. I, I, I still to this day don't know how she did it. It's just not my thing. <laughs> it is for some people, but for me, no, it, it, was, is. Yeah. it was just horrifying. Like I just wanted to run and hide. All right. One other question looking back for both of you. What was your first deal of any type? It could be, could be something when you were a kid or early in your career, whatever comes to mind. That's, you know, not a sale, but a deal. I'm happy to go first on this one. So I was a senior in high school and uh, or between my senior year and first year of college, and I got a job. And the job that I got was writing software for a husband and wife team. Uh, uh, they were named Chris and Helena Aves, uh, and it was writing software for the petroleum industry Okay. In the early 1980s in Dallas, Texas, although they had customers all over the, the, the country. It was just the two of them. And they, they hired me for 10 bucks an hour. So I learned very quickly that if I worked 80 hours a week, I made twice as much as if I worked 40 hours a week. <laughs> but the deal part of it was that um, I didn't get equity, but I got a 5% royalty on the software that I wrote. Okay. Which I didn't really think that much of at the time. Like I didn't sit down and do a calculation. And, you know, as a freshman in college, I would get royalty checks from them uh, on a monthly basis, along with I continued to work for them. So however many hours I worked, they, they paid me times 10. But the royalty checks would be a thousand bucks a month, 2,500 bucks a month. One month, I got a, a check for a little bit over $10,000 as a freshman in college, wow. you know, for, for software that I had written that, I was, that was being published and was being sold. That was really the first time that I understood this notion of equity to the extent that that was a proxy for equity at the time for me. 
but that, you know, I didn't have to be working every hour uh, to be earning a salary. Wow. And, and that lesson of not, you know, having to sell your time for money and, you know, comparatively passive income. I mean, obviously you work for it in the beginning, but then it becomes passive. Like to learn that that early. I mean, wow, what, what a gift. It was very powerful. Matt, what comes to mind for you? I don't have that kind of story. <laughs> I really don't. I, uh, I do remember the first deal that I worked on, uh, which I, I worked briefly in, at a venture capital firm for a couple of years early out of college, my second job. And we were doing two investments that I remember working on because uh, they were pretty high profile were Priceline and E-Trade. And this is like 1994, 1995. So it's the very, very beginning of the, of the commercial internet. And um, I hadn't been an investment banker, uh, like a lot of the people at the firm had been. I had been a management consultant. So I, like, I, was, I was used to working hard on projects. I was used to deadlines. But all I remember the first time I worked on one of those deals was, was thinking, like, why do I have to be up overnight for this? <laughs> like, this is an awful lot of work that some of this could be done tomorrow. Right, right. Um, but it was sort of my first introduction to, like, working on a, on a deal deal. And uh, and just wondering, like, why the why is everyone jumping through hoops to get this done so quickly? Well, I, I got to tell you, it's, uh, it brings me back to I remember my days, early days as, a, as an attorney in the eighties, and uh, and um, you know we used to, of course, this was the time before digital, so you used to look, look physically go to the printers, right, when you were doing IPOs and secondary offerings, and you'd have to sit there and literally work around the clock, you know, overnight, waiting for pages to come back and proofreading them, and. And, you know, we kept suits in the office, uh, you know, because we might have to get the other editors will say there's a window in the market and you'd have to get on a plane to Atlanta or Dallas or whatever like that, like the first flight out. So, yeah, I mean, uh, some things have changed, but uh, in terms of pace of deals and working around the clock for some folks, uh, that certainly changed for me, but it hasn't changed for some others, though. (laughs) So I want to get to the book and talk about boards. But before we go there. I mean, you both have so much, you know, just other experience and background with startup companies and funding and tech stars and all this stuff. So talk to us a little, just give us a little bit of your background there so we have context, you know, where we're going. And then also, um, you've been in the game a long time. Talk to us, maybe you see some evolutions in the industry. So, you know, what's, what, what's interesting on what's happened from the early days until, you know, until now? Well, I, I've been at this since uh, the mid, mid-80s. And I've been really in three roles sequentially. At first, I was an entrepreneur. So I started a company and ran it for a number of years. And it was a self-funded business. We never raised any money. So my first deal with that company uh, was when we sold it. And uh, we sold it to a public company, uh, which was a totally new idea for me. I'd never really thought about selling the business. And I was really fortunate in the two guys that bought my company were both very experienced deal guys. they, uh, one was named Len Fassler. Len passed about 18 months ago. Uh, the other was a guy named uh, Jerry Pock. Jerry is retired, but uh, still does plenty of uh, deals because he can't help himself. Sure. And I was really fortunate that Len and Jerry really took me under their wing. And um, I became the technical guy on the deal team. So uh, I got exposed to, they did a bunch of acquisitions in a relatively short period of time. I got exposed to their style of deal making and doing acquisitions. Uh, which is very different than, uh, in some ways, today's style. Uh, theirs was extraordinarily relationship-driven. Yep. Um, it was not quite a handshake, but you know, you focused on getting to a handshake first, and then you worried about papering it um, versus a lot of the nonsense that goes on today uh, in terms of the dance. And 
they were very quick to focus on the things that mattered in the context of doing a deal rather than all the other stuff, some of which came into play, but they just sort of focused on what they cared about, knew what they cared about, knew it was important and got to it. While I was working for uh, their company, uh, I also started making angel investments. So I spent three years investing basically almost all the money I'd made from selling my first company uh, into about 40 companies over a three-year period. So I'd never made an angel investment before. I never made an investment before. Yeah. All of a sudden, I had a pile of cash and I just started investing at the beginning of the commercial internet. And I figured it out as I went. And the, the idea then of somebody who was investing in a company a month was sort of nuts. Uh, today, it's, you know, not nuts, but in, you know, in the mid nineties, you know, the sure. very early stage investing, seed investing was, was very deliberate and the pacing, especially for individual angels tended to be pretty slow. Yeah. So I learned an enormous amount uh, in three years by being uh, essentially the first investor in a bunch of companies. And then in a lot of those companies joining the board and in a couple of cases, co-founding the company. And then in 1996, 97, sort of accidentally became involved with what today is a very well-known uh, Japanese company, but at the time was not, uh, which is a company called SoftBank, which was just starting to buy companies that at the time were called digital media companies. It wasn't even called internet companies. And I got involved with a team that was uh, buying some companies and investing in what was becoming the commercial internet, which was the area that I was investing mostly as an angel. Yeah. And all of a sudden I ended up sort of accidentally becoming a VC and being part of this team, which then generated over time uh, the first fund that we raised. So, you know, from a investing perspective and deal perspective, I, I really learned how to do it from Len and Jerry. I always took this approach of being pretty simple and straightforward about what mattered not getting caught up in the minutia of a bunch of other stuff, dancing whatever dance the other side wanted, whether it was a buy or sell type dynamic, mm -hmm. but trying to stay at a very personal relationship level through the process rather than get mired in the technical or legal details of things. And then as an investor in companies, and I was an investor in Matt's prior company, Return Path, I've always been very comfortable in private companies, acquiring other private companies is a way to grow uh, inorganically. And, and Matt yeah. did it extremely well at Return Path. I think you acquired about a company a year uh, over the life of the business. Not, not quite, but 15 or so over, over a 20-year period, something like that. And most worked, some didn't. Sure. Um, but sort of this notion of using it to in, extend and enhance the business, and in some cases being opportunistic with a competitor, but almost always sort of focusing on it from a perspective of, is this additive, yes or no? And, yeah. and I'll just end with a line that Len used to use all the time with me. Whenever we would be looking at something together, we started a, a few companies together uh, after he bought my first company. So we, we did a bunch of acquisitions where we were working as partners <clears throat> on that side of it. And one of his first questions after we'd find something that maybe was interesting or start a conversation, have that first conversation is he'd say, would you buy it for a dollar? And if the answer was yes, then there was something to talk about. And right. surprisingly, when you ask that question, there's a lot of stuff you wouldn't buy for a dollar. Right, right, right. Um, even though you might get excited about it on first blush, 
or you might have that first meeting or a banker might be trying to get you to get excited about it. But that question, would you buy it for a dollar is clarifying. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. All right. So I want to dig in before we, um, we go to that great setup you, uh, for, for, for Matt and talk about his deals that he did to grow his company. I want to go back on a couple of things that you said, because, you know, the, the way that you learn deal making and the, you know, this concept of only focusing on what's important and knowing what you want and, you know, and it's still crucial in, in you know, in today's uh, world. And, and I, and I guess, yeah, I mean, I, I see, I see it very mixed nowadays. Right. And so we, we happen to do um, a bunch of deals in financial services, especially with investment advisors, people who manage money. And in that field, uh, I see more of that kind of approach, mainly because uh, these are never, nobody's buying widgets, right? People are buying, people with relationships, with client relationships that are going to be, they're going to be working together. So even though it's not structured most often as a merger, it really is sort of a merger, you know, of companies that are going to be going on together. So, you know, that sort of lives on, but in some other places in tech and some other places where, you know, you're, I'm not saying this in any derogatory way where, where you buy widgets more than key people, you know, yeah. I mean, uh, sometimes you see things that are very, very different and a very different approach. Right. I think that I think that's well said. Uh, there's another layer of it, though, which is I think there are some people on either side of the deal. But let's focus on the buy side, the, the person that's that's the acquirer. I, I think there are a lot of acquirers who are afraid to make a mistake. Yeah, and it's true generically in life and business and everything. Is that you know the the sort of place you live on the risk curve and you're willing to take risk. Oftentimes, a lot of the behavior, especially when you get past the very beginning of the conversation around the deal process, is then to mitigate risk. And it's much less focused on the whole reason you're doing a deal is not to mitigate risk, but to generate upside. And so very quickly, especially when you let people who are not the principals get involved, or, or the people who aren't the principals start to get involved, it becomes very much about the downside, the risk sharing, what problems we're going to have versus the vision that the principals had of the combination of the business. And so one of the things, even, you know, alongside the process or that I've always tried to do is recognize that the alignment between the principles is the starting point. If you, the second you lose alignment between the principles, you, you, you may as well just stop. Yeah. And there are plenty of deals that grind through to closure, even when the principles are misaligned. But uh, if you lose that, you have a real problem. And if you defer to others to create that alignment, if you're a principal in a deal process and you hide behind your lawyers or you really use your lawyers to talk to the other side, or you're a big company and the business person is totally disconnected from legal, is totally disconnected from corp dev, those things are not healthy for i for the for the transaction process and so the person who's the business sponsor of the deal in a larger company the second they disengage even if that's the company's mo the company says look once it's in the deal process the business person goes away until after we grind you to a pulp and extract the best possible it's like that's bullshit and call you know i i like to call the other side i'm like come on guys like i get it i get what the deal is but we have a strategic rationale for it. Let's focus on that strategic rationale as a driver. And you're a gigantic company with a bunch of resources. You know, I'm an investor in a small, tiny little company here relative to your gigantic company. 
we're not trying to extract anything inappropriate. Let's just be fair and let's move it quickly. So, like trying to change the tone so it's a collaborative process versus a really acrimonious process or one where people are totally focused on the downside. Shifting yeah. away from that is what I've always tried to do. Uh, again, Matt, you want, you want to add something there? No, I just say it's just such a great point. If I think about the, um, you know, the first large scale deal that I was involved with, which yeah. also goes back to really kind of early internet, internet 1.0, I was on the executive team at this company called Movie Phone. I was not um, the founder, but I was the guy that yeah. ran the internet business for Movie Phone. So yeah. Movie Phone was a small cap public company. When we ended up selling the company, I was one of a couple people that worked with the CEO and the CFO on, on the deal team. And, uh, you know, it was a large transaction. It was a, it closed at almost $600 million valuation. And it was literally started with a handshake, a handshake in a movie theater. Um, <laughs> How and, and yeah, no, it was very apropos that my boss, the CEO was sitting at the premiere of You've Got Mail of all okay. movies. Um, and he was sitting behind, I, I believe he was sitting behind Bob Pittman, uh, who was the president of AOL at the time. And he was sitting near Barry Diller and you know, Bob Pittman said something to him like, hey, maybe we should own Movie Phone. What do you think of that? <laughs> and I, I think Barry Diller heard it and said, wait, oh, hold on a second. And then like those were the two companies that ended up bidding on the business. And it got done because of the relationship that Andrew had built with both of them, but ultimately with, with Pittman at AOL. So that really, really resonates, Brad. But then if I think, if I fast forward to the, to the kind of the most recent, which was selling uh, Return Path, the company that, that I spent 20 years building and Brad spent 19 of them on the board with me. Yeah. Um, the, uh, we had the, ultimately the sale that, that happened. And two years prior to that, we had a sale that almost happened and didn't happen. Okay. Which is a whole other story. But if I think about those two things, the single biggest difference in the deal dynamic between the two um, was that I knew the CEO of the buyer in one and I did not in the other. Yeah. And when, um, you know, when there was the slightest hiccup at the, at, the, at the end, the one that went through where I knew the CEO and had kind of done the handshake with him, anytime anything went a little bit sideways with either one of us, we texted the other one, yeah. we got on the phone, we yeah. fixed it in about eight seconds and we instructed our respective sides to go fix it. And it was fine. And the deal that didn't happen two years prior, the one that blew up, and when saying the 11th hour doesn't explain it. It's like the 11th hour and 59th minute. Um, it blew up because the other CEO pulled the plug. Uh, I had never met him during the process, which was a mistake. And I knew it was a mistake. And I tried to meet him a couple of times and everyone said, no, 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 he's too busy. Don't worry about it. You know, his guy is on it. It's fine. I thought we had good alignment between the business unit lead and the corp dev. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, someone on the executive team didn't like it, went behind everyone's back to the CEO and the CEO said, fine, kill it. Wasn't invested in it. Didn't know me, didn't know anything. Um, so that, that, you know, deals get done differently now, but they still get done the same way. Great lessons guys. And, and listen, uh, my, my uh, deal quest community uh, listeners and viewers, uh, We'll hear some themes that they know I talk about, you know, uh, very much. And a couple of specific things are, you know, I have a very particular way when we do deals for clients you know, as, as attorneys on, in preparing them because of exactly what you said. I say to them, listen, here's what you got to understand, right? You might have shaken hands with the CEO or whoever it was, whatever, but they're going to send in their people, their lawyers, their accountants, their finance people, their HR people, their whatever, right? And their entire job, whether, whether it's stated to them or not, that they think is to make sure that they don't 
get embarrassed, that they don't miss anything, that they don't, you know, screw something up because, you know, their bigger risk is that the deal goes through and they have missed something important, right? Then frankly, if the deal, you know, doesn't go through, especially if, you know, the CEO is not really saying, hey, get this one done. Um, and so that leads me to, you know, to have my client do, I do this pre-due diligence, you know, which any good attorney advisor should do with clients to say, listen, like, you got to understand, sometimes what happens is they think there's some smoke and they assume there's fire. So you don't even want there to be smoke, right? You need, like, everything should be perfect. Make sure every contract, you know, has has the renewals, you know, in it, that it's up to date, that, you you know, the same thing on the financial side. There's a way. There's a way you can prep to try to avoid that because if any of these other advisors or people come in and get nervous, you got a potential problem. The other thing I say, and, and listen, I'm one of them, right? I'm a lawyer. Every every lawyer these days says they're a deal maker because they got a reputation of being deal killers. So now they say they're a deal maker, right? The truth is, a lot of my colleagues are not, unfortunately. And and the reason for it is, and I, it's funny. I had this conversation. I was a guest on someone else's podcast. Guy was a former lawyer, right? And he said to me, "Why is it? Why is it?" And I said, I said, listen, think about it. You went to law school. I said, do we ever, we spend our entire time in law school looking at everything that went wrong. All you, there are no cases on deals that worked. You can't study cases. What you do in law school, you study cases. The only cases are on things that went bad, right? They don't go to litigation if they, if they work. So we are over-indexed as a profession on risk. Now risk, you know, uh, identifying risk, trying to mitigate risk, uh, make sure, making sure your client's taking knowing risk. Don't get me wrong. It's an important part of the process. But what we don't do generally as a profession that well, and frankly, it's been my, one of my biggest competitive advantages, is to balance that risk against the, the opportunity and the upside and understand that there's no such thing as being successful in business of any type or deals, whatever, without taking risk, right? So lawyers are over-indexed on the risk side, but it's not just lawyers. You're right. See other people come in, finance, HR. Every one of those can, you know, can screw up a deal. And I love the advice of you know, making that connection at the highest levels and staying involved. I was just, I just had a uh, deal negotiation today. I spoke to the lawyers on Friday. I spoke to my client. I said to them, listen, we have an all parties call on Tuesday, but you know, here are three or four issues. Just call the other CEO, right? Like, let's not deal with that in the old party, right? And you know what? He called her. They had a conversation. We came into this call with those, with the, you know, three others, four issues resolved and one on the verge of getting resolved. So love the advice. You know, it happens with financings too, um, right? I did a, I've done a huge number of financings. It's the same thing. You know, you're doing a financing, you you have your handshake, you see eye and eye with the partner at the firm, and outside counsel gets involved, and like things can go sideways. Yeah, yeah, you know, and I think I think unlike a lot of lawyers, I do think there is a reason to blame the lawyers sometimes, and then you know. And then sometimes, you know, we, we actually just take the hit for our clients, you know, <laughs> but, but uh, sometimes it's our fault. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. Um, so, all right. Um, I want to get to this book, but Matt, you know, obviously you gave us sort of a key thing from your one of the early deals and your latest deal. You did so many others. Tell me a little bit about like, I think what I want to ask you, I talk a lot of, on this podcast about the mindset of a deal maker, 
right? There are so many companies out there that do a great, you know, they've, they've created a great company, right? Maybe they've grown and they've done pretty well on organic growth, but that's all they focus on, right? They focus on their sales and marketing and, you know, customer acquisition or whatever it is, depending upon the business they're in. And, 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 and they don't grow inorganically as well. They don't grow through deals. They don't look at, and I, and I can't tell you how many times I've even just said to somebody, they're trying to get into a new market or a new geography or, you know, or a new industry or whatever it is. And, and, you know, and they're banging their heads against the wall. And I said, have you thought about who has access to that market already? Maybe you acquire them. Maybe you do a licensing deal with them. Maybe you do a distribution deal with them. Maybe you do a joint venture, you know, and they haven't even thought about it. So do you have any thoughts on like, what had you right, go from being an entrepreneur, right? Which is, which is its own mindset, right? Compared to people who are, but to become a deal maker. And, and what do you think maybe stands in the way of other folks, you know, not taking advantage of that kind of growth opportunity? Those are two very different questions. I'll tell you the thing that, that uh, as they say, with entrepreneurship, um, necessity is the mother of invention. So the first deal I did, which was the one that led me to inherit Brad as a board member, okay. what, which actually that's not the first one, but it was the first, first significant one, was uh, out of necessity. So uh, you know, we started the business in December of 99. The NASDAQ peaked in March of, uh, or April of 2000, and then it blew up in October of 2000. Sure. Uh, so what happened was we, we actually had, a, I think, a reasonably durable business idea, but all of our customers went out of business. Yeah. So the the you know our little fledgling company with a small fundraise was really struggling, and what happened was we had one direct competitor in what people thought of as a winner take all market, although I'm not actually sure it was, and they too were struggling, and we ended up merging the two companies. So, yeah. uh, so I had started one of the businesses with an uh, investor in New York named Fred Wilson. Uh, some entrepreneurs in Colorado had started the other business um, with Brad behind them. It, you know, weird coincidence, Fred and Brad knew each other and one of the entrepreneurs and I knew each other and ended up sort of jamming the two companies together and saving the business. Um, you know, we sort of, we got fresh financing as a result of that and, and lived to see another day. And I think that that experience, even though that was a really painful deal to get done because it was both companies, it was a save the business move. It was close to a 50-50 deal, which would made everybody unhappy. And, you know, we weren't fighting over that much value at that point because it was two pre-revenue startups or two right. you know, very, very limited revenue startups. But that was certainly an eye-opener for me and about, you know, M&A as a tool in the tool belt. And we did go on over the course of 20 years. I think we did um, 13 acquisitions. We didn't do two or three that we got close on, and those were equally informative, um, and we also ended up selling four businesses. We did four divestitures along the way okay. um, and then ultimately sold the company. So between all those deals and not quite deals on both the buy and the sell side, each one, I think, reinforced that, hey, this is, this is a, a tool that you should really have in the tool belt, even if you're focused on growing revenue organically. Um, and some markets lend itself, lend themselves more than others, uh, for sure. But you know, one of the things that's easy about technology companies is their asset light. Um, so you're not, you know, you're not buying a manufacturing plant somewhere, you're not buying inventory somewhere. And uh, you're really buying, you know, people, customers, code, IP, and the deals can take lots of different shapes. Um, name a type of deal. And we probably did it in our, in our list of 13. We did stock deals. We did asset purchases. We bought IP. We bought teams. We bought whole companies. We bought units of companies. Like, as long as you're willing to think creatively about it and about how the pieces and parts fit together, uh, it can be really, really accretive. But yeah, as Brad said, they didn't all go well. Some of them were, were really, really didn't go well. <laughs> right, 
Right. Matt, Matt's, uh, Matt's comment about that, that first deal uh, is fascinating to me because I, I remember it in some ways the same and in other ways uh, somewhat different. Uh, I remember the, the setup exactly the same, right? We were in, I was an investor in a company and on the board of, of a tiny little company that was going to go out of business if something didn't happen. And, you know, Fred was on the board of Matt's tiny little company that was going to go out of business if something didn't happen. And, and there's something that w- the, both companies were trying to raise a financing and they both ended up at the doorstep of the same investor, a guy named Greg Sands, uh, who was at Sutter Hill. Yeah. And um, he saw both businesses and he, you know, his reaction was, these are the same businesses. Um, and we knew that because the two companies knew each other. And there was, I don't remember how the suggestion was made, but somewhere the suggestion was made something to the effect of, if you guys put the two businesses together and there's one business, I, Greg, will issue a term sheet to fund the business, which basically was survival for the two businesses. And by that point, at least in the company I was on the board of, which is called Veripost, I believe that we'd run out of options. Like we'd we tried to find other investors. There were no investors to be found anywhere in that time frame because of the internet bubble collapse. Sure. And before Fred and I talked, Matt and the CEO of, of Veripost, Eric, uh, had talked, and there was consensus that at least communicated to me. There was consensus between them. I had not met Matt yet. I only knew through this through Eric that they were game to figure something out. Like they could put the two companies together if we could figure out a deal. Yeah, yeah. And so it was less about like convincing anybody on the company side that they needed to do this. But I think the leaders of the founders of both sides knew that they were basically screwed unless something happened. And so Fred and I had a conversation. I don't think the conversation lasted more than uh, 10 minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes. And it was very simple. And, you know, we, we sort of acknowledged the reality of both companies said that, you know, he talked to Matt and Matt was supportive of this. And I talked to Eric and Eric was supportive of trying to do something. What should we do? Well, how about a 50-50 deal? And Fred said to me, I said to Fred, well, let's just do a 50-50 deal. And, and his response was, I have three times the amount of money in this that you do. Because their return path had raised, I don't remember, 10, 12 million bucks. And uh, Veripost had raised three or four million bucks. And uh, I said, oh, that's okay, that's fine. How about we do a 55-45 deal? And Fred's response was done. <laughs> and that was a negotiation, right? right. I mean, it, that was it. I mean, there was who's going to run it. You know, each company had 20 people. The combined company should only have 20 people. So they had to deal with that. That's painful sure. uh, and not very much fun. You know, one group was in New York. The other group was in Colorado. How do you deal with that? Turns out that they dealt with it by having um, two offices and a whole bunch of people in Colorado for a long time. In fact, I think Colorado was the largest of the two offices for most of the life of the company and on and on and on. But that the actual deal was very, very short because it was between two people who trusted each other. Yeah. And the people running the companies had already agreed that it made sense to do it. Yep. And in the context of that, yeah, there could have been all kinds of spreadsheets and calculations and arguments, but it didn't matter because we both, both Fred and I knew that our value of our equity, if we didn't have somebody else that was going to come in and lead around was probably zero. Right. <laughs> so right. let's not horse around too much. Let's just get on with it. And you know, in the end, Matt and and the combined team built a very significant business. Uh, you know, it was a, over a hundred million dollar company in revenue and profitable. You know, but from that very inauspicious beginning. So that that's kind of an important part of it that I remember was yeah, it was. I think the pain and the no fun was because it was the only the other option was going out of business for both companies. Right. Great story. That I mean, one way to say it is without a deal, 
right? It wouldn't have been, you know, everything you you accomplished, at least in this form in this company. Obviously, I'm sure you would have gone on to do something else and, you know, uh, but it wouldn't have been possible, right? I mean, you know, uh, it sounds like either company probably wouldn't have survived on its own. So I think that's right. Yeah, powerful. All right. I want to get to the book. So who wants to jump in and give me a uh, just high level on the book generally? And then I want to talk about more specifically, you know, board development, things like that as it relates to deals. But but just just high level. Let's talk about what the book talks about. Talk to us about boards. Give us the, uh, give us the scoop. Um, so the... Um... The startup world has an enormous number of entrepreneurs in it, and almost all of them have never done it before. Right. They've never started a business before. They've never run a business before. Most of them haven't run much of anything before. And startup boards, like the other two books that I wrote that Brad was involved with but didn't co-author, Startup CEO and Startup CXO, is designed as a field guide, which is a subtitle or really an instruction manual. Mm-hmm. Like if you've never done this before, this put this on your desk, dog ear the pages you want, look at the table of contents. You don't have to read it front to back. But when you're trying to figure out something you've never figured out before, it should be in there somewhere. Yeah. Um, so Startup Boards is really, a, a, uh, I think, a very short but comprehensive resource to, you know, as to how to build a board, how to run a board, how to be on a board, how to get on a board. Um, and, you know, just it's focused on the entrepreneurial ecosystem and startups, but it's, it's relevant, you know, 80% of it is relevant to any board, large company, public company, um, nonprofit, all of those have different, some different challenges for sure. Um, but, but, you know, pretty high overlap in terms of content with what you would produce for one of those. Good stuff. I mean, and and you're right. I mean, all these, uh, startup entrepreneurs, right. You know, first time around, you know, having, having resources like that, uh, you know, is, uh, is phenomenal. All right. So let's talk more specifically. So what are some of the recommendations that people make? What are some of the mistakes that, that people make in, in building boards? Um, give us, give us a few highlights uh, and they, we can start general. They don't have to necessarily be deal, deal related. We'll drill down yeah. deals in a moment. I'll point to something that I think is a very powerful framework that Matt, uh, Matt has, which is the Matt's rule of one. Uh, and I'll, I'll let Matt explain the, the rule, but the, the challenge with most startup boards is that they're not well thought out. The founders either are operating from a perspective of viewing uh, their need to have control over the board as a key priority, or in a lot of cases, absence of a board, absence of any sort of oversight as a key priority. On the other side of it, generally, when you when you raise money from VCs, uh, you end up in this situation where VCs get board seats uh, with their investment. And so, it indexes the other direction where you have these VC heavy boards or these VC and founder heavy boards, mm-hmm. or you're constantly sort of in this world where you're not really being deliberate about the configuration and the construction of the board. And a lot of entrepreneurs early on sort of don't think about it, don't have experience with it, blow it off, don't recognize the potential value of the board. And so they don't invest in that energy. Um, and then find themselves after a couple of rounds of financing, sort of in a situation where the board is not a particularly effective team, and it's not a very healthy configuration, and it's one that's hard to change because it's been a negotiated by financing type approach. So, with that, Matt, you want to describe your your rule of one? Yeah, the rule of ones is is easy. Uh, it's add independent directors from day one. 
Yeah. Right? You don't have to wait until your series A, your series B, like you can add an independent director on day one. That's the first one. My rule of thumb is try to have one founder on the board, not multiple founders on the board. And there, there are times and circumstances where it may make sense to have two members of the team on the board. Yeah. About that. But rule of thumb is try to have one member of the management team, one founder on the board. And then for every one VC, add one independent. Yeah. So, you know, the, in my mind, the ideal three-person board is a founder, an investor, and an independent. The, the ideal five-person board is a founder, two VCs, and two independents, and, and so on. And the part of what we do at Bolster is help companies build their board. We do, um, you know, we're, we're a technology platform, but we uh, companies run a lot of board searches on the platform, yep. uh, probably place 30 or 40 board members. And almost all of them have been the company's first independent director. Mm. And some of those companies are Series D companies. Right. Um, or maybe they have an independent director. They used to have one, and then they just woke up and they realized that they want to go public in a year or two. And their their board of of like five white guys that are all founders and VCs is not is not going to work for that. Um, but uh, you know, it's extraordinary some of the things that we've seen with just the number of companies that have open independent board seats and never fill them. Um, and uh, anyway, the, so that's a, a one piece of advice in the book for sure is start early building a diverse and independent board um, and don't, don't make it too founder heavy or too VC heavy or too founder VC heavy. I, I love that. And I, and I want to go to then, you know, who, who do we look for? What types of independent directors, what they bring and how it relates to deals. But, but you said something that I can't pass up because people who know me know that I'm committed to diversity and inclusion. My wife happens to be African-American. She runs a company, uh, one of her companies, um, that is a community for women executives of color. Mm. And part of what they are doing is is create, looking to create more board placement opportunities for uh, women of color executives. Um, so uh, talk to me a little bit about, uh, and, and obviously this applies uh, you know, more so, I don't know, more so, but, you know, it's become more top of mind and, and boards, you know, begin criticize, criticize they don't do this at the bigger company level, right? But so I'm curious as to how you mentioned the word diversity, you know, how that is playing out in more in the startup world. And, uh, you know, what are, I'll show my bias. I mean, I believe that there are just advantages to diversity of all types, you know, uh, in, in in any kind of company, a management team, boards, et cetera. So I'll put my cards on the table, but uh, I'd love to hear from you. Yeah, I think the the um, the topic of diversity in the boardroom is a is a really interesting one. Um, you know, in some ways, my the the evolution of my boards, just on the companies I've run, has has uh, you know has has been uh, night and day with that. My board at Return Path was seven white guys, and it, by the way, it was a phenomenal board. Oh, sure, yeah. phenomenal board great independent directors and great VCs. And my board now is six people and uh, two white guys. And so it's a very, very different, uh, very different board and, and equally effective. Yep. Um, so the, the thing that's so interesting and, you know, now having helped, I don't know, 30 or 40 um, CEOs through a board search in the last couple of years, the thing that's so interesting is almost everyone starts, every one of the, the search processes starts the same way with the CEO saying, I'm committed to adding diversity to my board. Right. Uh, and then I, I say, great. And then we start going through their uh, requirements, their ideal persona. And the, almost invariably, the next thing out of their mouth is, and I want someone who's been a CEO and has multiple boards on their resume. Right. <laughs> right. And that's, you, we usually pause the conversation at that point. And, uh, you know, and, and, and change the conversation a little bit to say, 
uh, if those two things might go together, but it's very unlikely that they go together because, you know, the few women and people of color who do have CEO experience and who do have multiple boards in their background are already on too many boards. Right. right. Because everyone wants them on their board. Um, And by the way, not for nothing, if your interest in diversity on the board is both um, a practical one and a societal one, you're not doing much for society uh, if you're not expanding the talent pool of experienced directors. Yeah. Um, by adding people who've never been on a board before. So one of the things that, that we try to do is we try to help CEOs find uh, talented executives to join their boards who are board ready, yes. but not necessarily board experienced. Yeah. Um, and you know, that, that's, that's something we've been spending a lot of time evangelizing. And I, we've had very good success with that of our, of our board placements so far. Uh, I, I'm not going to get the number right, but it's north of 80% are, are women or people of color. Um, and almost all of them have never been on a board before. Oh, that's great. That's great news. But are, are phenomenal board members. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's no, I mean, we're not talking about sacrificing, you know, in any way here, right? You know, quality. No, no. That way. Yeah. Um, I'll also note that one of the reasons I've been able to build our board the way I have at Bolster is that I have some venture investors who have decided not to take board seats. Mm. Uh, and so the bolster story is both instructive and and kind of weird for a bunch of reasons. So I don't want to get into it too much. But Brad is a good example of it. Um, Fred Wilson uh, is a good example of it. Greg Sands is a good example of it. Um, all of them have said, you know, fill the board seat with someone else. You have as much of my brain space as you want. Make me a board observer. I'll come when I can. And you know, for us at, at Bolster, it's kind of been the best of both worlds because we still have their brain space and their participation in board meetings from time to time. Um, and we've built a, a very independent and very uh, diverse board, both diverse ex- in experience, diverse in, you know, in demographics, um, diversity of thought uh, from the get-go. Love it. Love it. And so, Brad, uh, let's, I'll ask you to connect it. So in terms of strategically picking out, I mean, you know, Matt gave us some criteria, uh, whether it's the, on the diversity side or the balance between VCs and independents. But tying this into deals, what kind of what's the strategic um, you know outlook in terms of building boards for folks that can help, whether it's raising capital, whether it's connections with you know joint ventures or deal, acquiring companies? You know, talk to us about the value of bringing uh, some deal connections and expertise on your board as well. Yeah, well, there's a lot. Although you don't need every board member to have the same capability, and I think that's very important. If you have uh, besides yourself as the the CEO of the company, if you got four board members, and all four board members are deal people, right. you know, and and they're oriented towards doing deals, you're going to spend all your time talking about doing deals. That's right. Um, in the same way that if all four of your board members are CFOs, you know, and or financially deeply financially oriented, you're going to spend all your time talking about your financials and your metrics. So right. there's some benefit to having different skill sets on the board. My my favorite quote that came up when we were starting to work on this book was from Jeff Lawson. Uh, Jeff is the uh, founder and and still CEO of Twilio, which is, I don't know, $20 billion market cap public company now. Yeah. And um, Jeff basically said, look, I get, I get to have two teams. I have my management team. I build it. And I, as the company scales and changes, I have to continue to modify and change it and help it level up and grow. But it's, it's my team. It's my leadership team. But I also have a board. And yeah, the board can fire me. So I acknowledge that the board can do that. But until they fire me, why not try to make it the most effective team I could make? Right. 
and get people on the board, not just that have different experiences and different skill sets, but get them working as a team towards the betterment and health of the company. And I think that was just profoundly straightforward because he looked at it and said, you know, CEOs stupid if they don't take advantage of this other resource that they have, which is called a board. Right. And you know, Matt, Matt does it with Bolster now. I mean, he learned how to do it with Return Path, and I think did it quite quite well with Return Path through lots of ups and downs, including moments in time where there were elements of the board that were dysfunctional and him having to navigate as CEO through that dysfunction. And, you know, it wasn't deliberate dysfunction. It wasn't, you know, I woke up one day and I'm going to add somebody to the board that's going to create dysfunction. Um, but when you realize that there's dysfunction, somebody's got to do something about it. And yeah. that somebody usually is the the CEO. It could be the chair, the lead director. And yeah. in the case of Return Path, I think Matt was the chair and there wasn't a separate lead director. So ultimately he had to do something about it. So, so Jeff's comment, I think is really powerful there. Uh, the other thing that's significant on this dimension is this notion that um, board members are not for life. Yeah. And some some boards are very deliberate about that. And some uh, CEOs at private companies focus on it. In public companies, by definition, they're not for life because they tend yeah. to have a term and the terms are staggered. And there's a whole bunch of legal reasons behind that, as well as sort of structural reasons. But in private companies, a lot of times there aren't really well-defined terms for board members. And so, you know, you could be in a position where a VC has the right to a seat for the, you know, forever or until the next financing. And, you know, you have situations like I had with return path where I was on the board of return path for a very long time, but for independent directors, there was always, at least in the case of return path and for the better boards that I'm on, there's a time limit at which point, it's not the board member's decision to stay on the board, although board members can always decide to get off the board if they want to at any time. Sure. Um, it's usually, you know, the CEO's decision or the founder's decision or some subset of the board's decision if there's a nominating committee. Yeah. So that you're not in this position where as a CEO, when you find yourself with a board member three years later, four years later, five years later, who's not being effective or who you got all the value from that board member in the first four board meetings. Right. By board meeting number five, the person had said everything they were going to say that was going to be useful to your company. Not a judgment on the person necessarily, but in the context of that business. Setting things up so that the board is viewed as a team and that there's rules of engagement as a team and commitment as a team is very, is very powerful. Yeah, the, the the term thing is a really interesting one. Uh, you know, I think I think in private companies, you know, you give you give an independent director an option grant, and there's kind of a default setting in everyone's head of well, option grants best over four years. Yeah, um, and I, I have been advising our early stage clients in particular, but but even later stage private companies to give two year deals. Uh, and you know, if you think about it, you're a Series A company or a seed stage company, and this is your first independent director. You, I can help you figure out what you need today. Yeah, I cannot figure out what you need two years from now. No, neither can you. And uh, you know, you can give someone a four year grant and be sad halfway through, or maybe you're lucky and you have someone that that has scaled with you. Um, but there's no problem with giving someone a two year grant if you want to renew it. You renew it. Yeah, love it, love it. Guys, there's so much more we can talk about. We're, we're, we're at the end of our time here, though. I will say, although this is not the topic, I mean, you want to talk about, you know, you talked about other boards. I mean, I've sat on some nonprofit boards as well. And 
the, the, I mean, nonprofit boards are horrible, many of them, of keeping people on way too long and not having rotating out. They make that mistake big time and it really adversely affects them. Um, little aside, we don't need to talk about it, just <laughs> editorial comment here. So um, before I ask you my final question uh, for each of you, where can people find out more about the book, your companies, anything else you want to, you know, you want to share and make available uh, for folks? Um, so uh, our company is Bolster, bolster.com, um, which is the marketplace for executive talent. Um, my blog is startupceo.com, and that has links on it to all three of the books. Um, we have uh, a website called startuprev.com, which has uh, startup boards, uh, my other books, Brad's other books. Uh, so that's a, a good place to go. That's kind of a catch-all for that. I'm extremely hard to find. I'm at Feld, F-E-L-D.com. And uh, my email is uh, easily discovered. It's just Brad at Feld.com. And I try to respond to anybody who reaches out to me. My only request is if somebody reaches out to me, start with the punchline so I know what to focus on. Ah, I love it. Well, that's very generous of you to give out that information. Um, All right. So my final question on the podcast is always about my highest uh, value in life, my highest ideal, which is freedom. And for me, that means everything from freedom from oppression for all people in the world to the reason I'm an entrepreneur and I haven't had a boss in decades. Uh, what does freedom mean to each of you and how does it impact your life and business? It means something different to me at 57 than it meant to me at, uh, or almost 57. I turned 57 in December. Then when I was in my, uh, when I was 10, <laughs> I was most definitely not not experiencing the freedom that I feel at 56 when I walked into my dad's office or, you know, even as a young entrepreneur in my 20s or 30s, I am very comfortable is the wrong word. I have accepted the notion that the lights go out someday. Mm-hmm. And for me, at least in terms of my own sort of view of hopefully the next third of my life, um, I hope to be able to uh, freedom freedom to me would mean uh, being able to spend time with people who I want to spend time with on things that I want to spend time on. Mm. And I feel very fortunate, you know, both in terms of being, you know, born in the U.S., you know, born to, you know, the son of a doctor uh, and an artist, although, you know, two generations earlier uh, or the generation before my parents, um, you know, my, my, my mother's father was a Russian Jew in, uh, you know, pre-World War One at the time when all Jews were getting exterminated in Russia. And he, you know, he managed to escape. Like, you know, I, I have sort of connection to that, but I also have the recognition that I'm two generations from that. And I got all the benefit of, of growing up as a, you know, a white American, you know, in the 1970s and 1980s sort of coming of age. And that at this stage in my life, being able to make a statement like that is is significant. But that's what it means to me. It, it means sort of having the ability in this finite period of time to spend it with whom I want and on what I want. Love it. Matt. That's such an important and elegant answer. I feel like anything I say is going to be <laughs> trivial next to it. Um, and, and, and I wholeheartedly agree with everything Brad said. Uh, and Brad and I have similar similar backgrounds. So, but I'll give you a I'll give you a narrower and more trivial answer um, that's important in the context of business, I guess. Which is, I have truly come over the years to appreciate the the freedom to think for myself. And there is so much groupthink in the world, and there is no place where there's more groupthink than business, and possibly tech, and possibly Silicon Valley. But I've I've truly come to appreciate the ability to 
you know, look at a problem that everyone looks at one way and I'm very comfortable to look at it a different way. Sometimes it makes sense to go with the flow and sometimes it doesn't. And that's not something that was easy to do in the beginning of my career. And, and I, as I have, I'm not quite 56 or 51, uh, but the older I get, the more comfortable I am doing that and the more I appreciate that ability. I love it. Brad Feld, Matt thank you so much for being great guests on the DealQuest podcast. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.